Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from my palatial home recording studios here in the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is currently the 29th of June, 2012, but for all of you stateside, for whom it is the 28th of June, 2012, welcome to tomorrow, and please step into my time machine. And I say that advisedly because tonight we are going to be taking a trip to the future. We're going to be looking at future visions, the visions of tomorrow, the crazy science fiction fantasies of yesteryear that are the absolute mundane reality of today. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that we are living in technologically, scientifically, breathtakingly wondrous times. And wondrous in the sense that not necessarily of something that's positive, something that's good, but something that we should be looking at awestruck, absolutely dumbstruck, that we are living in such times where such incredible feats of science, engineering, and uh, health uh, is just, uh, again, the unthinkable is now thinkable in so many different ways that I think sometimes we get we get addicted to the little drib-drab of information that we see coming across the headlines of our favorite newswires from time to time of, of interesting little breakthroughs that we forget that there is a larger picture emerging and that we are living in some pretty amazing and uh, pretty hair-raising times in a lot of ways. And there's a side of this which it makes it very easy for us to become very uncomfortable with the changes that are coming down the line. And I certainly myself have my own reservations about the types of scientific breakthroughs that are being touted on a daily basis. There are certainly things that should be giving us pause as a society, as a civilization, as a species, about what is happening and the changes that we are wreaking on, on this planet, in our own genome, all of the, uh, again, unthinkable things that we are able to t tinker with and tamper with now. And I think there is a decided lack of a societal discussion about what's going on. But having said that, and having made that proviso, and having made my own views very clear, let me also say that there is the tendency to give into what has been termed, I think, unfortunately, in some other media, pessimism porn. So the idea that that everything is necessarily a terrible thing, and, and everything is going to end up as a tragedy. Well, not necessarily so. Technology, like anything else, is a tool and a tool can be wielded to, to kill, it can be a stick of brute force and an instrument for oppression, or it can be a tool for liberation. So there are positive things to pick out from this. So perhaps we can use that as a springboard from last week's conversation, talking about the good news and the positive things that people can affect in their societies when they start taking it up into their own hands instead of waiting for political messiahs to descend on them. Perhaps we can also think about the ways that science and these scientific developments can be used for the good instead of necessarily only dwelling on the ominous aspects of all of that. But I'll let you decide for yourself tonight as we start going through some of these stories that are making headlines right now. We're going to take some stories from around the world that have just come out in the last few weeks but that are, I think, of world historical import and really should be things that we are thinking about as a society. And, of course, this plays into a lot of the agendas that we've talked about on this program before, that, for example, the transhumanist agenda that wants to see us eventually all merging with machines and becoming part of the Borg collective consciousness, which, again, sounds like science fiction fantasy and just crazy out there stuff, but is becoming more and more a reality as we will start documenting tonight on the program. So we've got a lot of information to get through, a lot of stories to go through, 
They're all very interesting. I hope you're following along at home with a pen and paper. And if not, well, I'm actually recording these radio shows as videos now, so you'll be able to find them archived as videos on CorbettReport.com after the transmission takes place. So there's another way to get Corbett Report Radio. But on that note, let's take a short breather, and we'll be back with more science fiction stories of tomorrow today, right after this. Broadcast friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are going over news headlines from the future today, visions of the future that are taking place in our current sci-fi reality that you wouldn't believe unless they were actually making headlines around the world. And as I mentioned there before the break, we are now starting to broadcast this uh, this radio broadcast as a video, so um, I'm currently playing around with that, and we'll see. This week I'm trying it out. Uh, last night's conversation with Michael Cross about psychopathy is now up on the videos tab of CorbettReport.com, so you can watch me delivering this radio show if you prefer to get it via video. But moving along, let's get into some of the headlines I'm talking about and uh, that I've been alluding to in the first few minutes of the transmission here. We're going to be talking about stories that, again, if you didn't read them in the uh, in the science news, you wouldn't believe they were possible. And a good example of that, something that, on its face, absolutely a positive story, an amazing thing that humans are able to achieve now. This coming from ScienceDaily.com just yesterday, June 27, 2012, injecting life-saving oxygen into a vein. And it says, patients unable to breathe because of acute lung failure or an obstructed airway need another way to get oxygen to their blood and fast to avoid cardiac arrest and brain injury. A team led by researchers at Boston Children's Hospital has designed tiny, gas-filled microparticles that can be injected directly into the bloodstream to quickly oxygenate the blood. The microparticles consist of a single layer of lipids, fatty molecules, that surround a tiny pocket of oxygen gas and are delivered in a liquid solution. In a cover article in the June 27th issue of Science Translational Medicine, John Keir, MD, of the Department of Cardiology at Boston Children's Hospital, and colleagues report that an infusion of these microparticles into animals with low blood oxygen levels restored blood oxygen saturation to near-normal levels within seconds. When the trachea was completely blocked, a more dangerous real-world scenario, the infusion kept the animals alive for 15 minutes without a single breath and reduced the incidence of cardiac arrest and organ injury. Right, the article goes on from there, but I think we understand the ramifications of what these findings show, which is that they are getting to the point where people do not even, well, theoretically, if we can play this out into, into humans, people will not necessarily need to breathe in order to oxygenate their blood. And uh, this is where it starts to, at least we can imagine where this will go in terms of the science fiction reality of tomorrow, and uh, we can imagine all of the various ways this might play out. And, of course, the first types of uh, situations where this would be most necessary would be, for example, imagine a lifeguard that comes along with an injection. If you're, if you're drowning, if you've, been, um, if you've swallowed enough water, you can't actually suck any more oxygen into your lungs, quickly reoxygenate you and keep you going, stopping the uh, brain death that happens within the first few minutes of uh, being unable to breathe. 
So, um, so again, absolutely an incredible technology with a lot of promise to, to have a very real effect on people's lives. But imagine playing that out even further. Imagine if there are ways to make this technology even more effective and to actually keep people going without the need for breathing for extended periods of time. Imagine that. We could, we could do uh, deep sea diving without any type of tank or anything. Of course, uh, pressure would, would be a problem, but, but in terms of just the oxygen itself, well, if we can just get it through injection, what an amazing thing that could be. Imagine the types of things that people would be capable of if they had that technology and were able to, uh, to use it in a, in a productive way. Uh, we could certainly let our imaginations run wild with a story like that, and why not? Because as people like Ray Kurzweil, the uh, transhumanist, the arch-transhumanist and person who thinks that we should all merge with the machines, often talks about, we are on an accelerating trend, and technology, the rate of acceleration of the change of technology is itself accelerating. We are on an exponential curve where once, uh, once a new technology is developed, it becomes something uh, much more advanced very quickly because the rate of our scientific learning is increasing even as that increase itself is increasing. It's something that's difficult to get our minds wrapped around, but, uh, but basically people like Kurzweil have been saying for a while that within 20 or 30 years we're going to have nanotechnologies floating around in our bloodstreams that will be able to, for example, just as a tiny example, be able to, to scrape out all of those, those nasty, uh, that nasty cholesterol in your system or, or any of the, uh, the, the things that are, that are going wrong in your bloodstream. You'll have little nanobots that we can inject in there to, to perform little procedures that will clean everything up and make everything tickety-boo again. And that's why people like Kurzweil truly believe that within 20 to 30 years, if you can just survive that long, you'll effectively be able to live forever because life extension technology will become more and more advanced. And again, that sounds really far out there. It sounds really bizarre and something like science fiction fantasy. But when you start looking at stories like this one, with blood being, uh, with being oxygenated by injection without the need for breathing through your lungs... That's a pretty incredible step towards that type of uh, science fiction. So, uh, of course, this isn't the only thing that people are thinking about when we start thinking about tampering, tampering with the body through various technologies. Of course, injecting oxygen is not necessarily a particularly advanced application of, of technology to the body. I mean, it's, it's taking concepts that we already know and applying them in a different way. But, uh, but think about some of the other things that are going on that are just now starting to provoke real debates in our society. So, for example, you might want to take a look at another News Daily article, again from yesterday. They have a lot of uh, science news on their science tab that is worth checking out. And uh, this one is actually from the sports news section. It says, Blade Runner, still subject of scientists' debate. And it says, quote, while South African athlete Oscar Pistorius attempts to become the first amputee runner to compete at the Olympic Games, scientists are still arguing whether his artificial limbs give him a critical advantage or not. Pistorius, born without fibulas and who had his lower legs amputated when he was a baby, uses carbon fiber prosthetic running blades and is hoping to qualify for the 400 meters of the Games. Pistorius beat the Olympic qualifying time of 45.30 in Pretoria in March, but must repeat that performance in an international meeting before June 30th to make the team for the London Games, which starts on July 27th. Pistorius, who has a personal best, whose personal best is 45.07, won the 100, 200, and 400 gold medals at the 2008 Paralympic Games. 
He also became the first amputee to compete at the Athletics World Championship when he ran in Daegu, South Korea last year. The science is fully clear that Mr. Pistorius runs considerably faster with his artificial limbs, said Peter Wayand, Associate Professor of Applied Physiology and Biomechanics in Southern, at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. He said in an email that the findings with Matthew Bundle, Assistant Professor at the University of Montana's Department of Health and Human Performance, also showed Pistorius had an advantage over one-legged amputees. It will leave the story there. Again, you can go and read further into that. Of course, the link to that will be in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. But this is where we start entering that world of advancing and upgrading our bodies with technology. And we're actually at the point where it seems that artificial limbs may be able to outcompete regular limbs, that it might actually give someone a, a distinct advantage. And, of course, this is just the beginning of this trend of technology, but I don't think we have to imagine very hard how in a very few number of years, as this technology starts to develop, it will be quite evident that the people with these upgrades will have an advantage. And to a certain extent, as a society, America is actually peculiarly well-situated to have this type of conversation, given that they've uh, come through the last decade or two of steroid scandals in baseball and thinking about what it means to artificially uh, juice yourself up, pump yourself up, make yourself more uh, more human than human, as the transhumanists like to say, through this technology, which in the case of steroids is, of course, just a, a, a compound that's being shoved into the body. It's not a particularly advanced technology, but again, as we start talking about artificial limbs and this Luke Skywalker Star Wars type uh, fantasy future as it's coming true today, we can start to see how this will become more and more of an issue in more and more sports to the point where we could very easily imagine in the future some sort of separate sports leagues for the enhanced uh, athletes. Of course, there would be the purists, I imagine, who would say, well, if you take any type of upgrades, then you obviously are not competing on the human scale, so you're not going to compete with us. I can imagine that. But on that side, I have no doubt that there would be people who would be willing to pay to watch uh, athletes performing at a superhuman level with artificial limbs and various upgrades of, uh, of all sorts of different kinds. And uh, and this is something that plays out in, in the sports realm in a very... Uh, in a way that's very easily understandable. But, of course, this has much, much greater societal implications as we start talking about the ways that this could be used. Of course, it could be used to upgrade people to do tasks that uh, that are, at the moment, dangerous or too monotonous or that put repetitive strain uh, types of people at risk for repetitive strain injuries and that type of thing, which, again, could be seen as a positive but uh, we could also see that type of thing where certain jobs would become basically undoable by humans and that people would be forced to accept upgrades in order to do that, that type of work. Again, there's a lot of different ways that this can play out, but it does feed into a broader agenda, which is the agenda that says that our, our mere human flesh and bone exoskeletons, or not exoskeletons, endoskeletons, are, are just uh, so, so passe, they're so weak and fragile and brittle, and really, why wouldn't we want some sort of upgrades? Why wouldn't, if we could get some sort of metal exoskeleton that would be virtually indestructible, why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't we want to merge with the machines? So, again, there is a good side to this. There is a, a positive side that can affect society in a good way. There is a negative side that we have to be careful of. 
And uh, personally, I don't think people should listen to my own views on everything. I think they should come to their own decisions. But we have to do it knowing that this science fiction future is not decades or centuries out. It is here now, and these types of stories are coming up. So for my money, the question still remains, who controls this technology? Who's funding it into existence? What companies are behind this? That, to me, is the important question, and one we'll take up right after this break. So don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're going over the science fiction stories that are making headlines today, the uh, the crazy technologies that are coming along the line. And once again, it's a glass half full, half empty type of uh, question when we start thinking about these types of technologies, how they're being implemented, and whether they're going to be used for the benefit of all humanity, like uh, like people like Ray Kurzweil and others would have you believe or whether they're going to be used as further tools of enslavement or enmeshment in a type of system that can be easily controlled from the top. So as I was mentioning before the break, this comes back to the issue of who is controlling this technology and how it is being implemented. And, of course, it comes back down to the question of who has the money to bankroll these types of new technologies. And in this day and age, in our current political economic climate, it is the multi-multi-billionaires of... Google uh, of Mammoth, the CEO of corporations like Google. So Google is definitely at the forefront of implementing all sorts of crazy technologies that, again, seem pretty out there, but they are becoming reality. So probably a lot of you will have heard in the last couple of days about a uh, rather interesting stunt that Google conducted. And we'll take this one from Discovery News. Google demos glass with crazy skydiving stunt. Quote, to show off a prototype version of its Project Glass Augmented Reality Eyewear announced last winter, Google required an airship, four wingsuits and parachutes, sign-offs from local and federal government agencies, favorable winds, and, not least, reliable mobile broadband. The craziest stunt I've ever seen at a technology event came about an hour and a half into the keynote opening Google's I.O. developer conference at San Francisco's Moscow and West Conference Center Wednesday morning. Google co-founder Sergey Brin barged on stage to interrupt a demo by Vice President Vic Gondotra of an event invitation service for his Google Plus social network. Brin, wearing his own set of glasses, said he wanted to show off the eyewear's capabilities, but warned that this could go wrong in about 500 different ways. The video cut to show a zeppelin in the sky. On it, Brin explained, was a friend wearing the same gadget, which functions as a sort of heads-up display by presenting info in a tiny screen positioned above your right eye and can capture and stream photos and videos. And I'll let you read on from there and actually watch the video from the conference. Yes, they had this big stunt where people dove out of sky dove out of a plane and then there were people mountain biking along the streets of San Francisco, etc., etc. And they're all wearing their Google glasses, their augmented reality eyewear that's literally jacked into a matrix of sorts. And uh, they're getting information on their little screen, even as they're recording everything they're seeing, and they were able to broadcast that in in real time to the conference as they dove out of the plane. It was all so breathtaking, and what a crazy, amazing stunt to happen at a technology conference. Wow, those, uh, those people sure know how to live it up. 
And again, it's uh, if you can hear the cynicism creeping into my voice, it's because obviously the augmented reality eyewear and other things are the most obvious instantiation of the next step in the implementation of this absolute mesh, this Internet of Things that we are being steeped into, whereby pretty soon it, it will not be so, so much of a bizarre thing to imagine that we will all have augmented reality eyewear and or whatever it, the, next, the next stage in that technology is. And the, uh, the idea of people implanted with brain chips so they can stay constantly jacked into the matrix and constantly in touch with their friends and family and others does not sound so far-fetched anymore. And, uh, and as we get further and further into that system, some of the, the things that spring out of that will have the, uh, the real capability of sending us in different directions as a species on this planet. And uh, one of the interesting developments that Google is also working on that didn't quite get as much attention, but did manage to get some attention, from the New York Times, how many computers to identify a cat? 16,000. Quote, inside Google's secretive X laboratory, known for inventing self-driving cars and augmented reality glasses, a small group of researchers began working several years ago on a simulation of the human brain. There, Google scientists created one of the largest neural networks for machine learning by connecting 16,000 computer processors, which they turned loose on the Internet to learn on its own. Presented with 10 million digital images found in YouTube videos, what did Google's brain do? What millions of humans do with YouTube? Looked for cats. Once again, you can continue reading that story for yourself, but basically these, uh, these computers were in the, this neural network, uh, this machine learning network that they were, they were uh, linked into, and, uh, and this, the combined power of these 16,000 machines were set loose on YouTube videos to look for cats and be able to identify cats. So there's no human sitting there that's feeding it information about the cats or, or telling it what to look for. It is looking for, for these types of things and trying to identify them throughout different videos. So basically uh, taking a look at all these videos and identifying when a cat appears on screen, which sounds like a pretty small job to go to through, but uh, this is a significant step in terms of artificial intelligence. And in fact, it shouldn't be that surprising to anyone who's been keeping their eye on this type of technology, because just a few years ago, I remember seeing a video of Ray Kurzweil again at one of his conferences, where he was demonstrating a technology of a camera that he was developing for his company that would take a picture of something, and it would be able to say what that thing is. And um, and at the time, he was taking a picture of for example, a chair, and it would say that is a chair. Well, this would be an amazing technology, for example, for the blind, so that they would be able to take pictures and understand what is in the room and where things are. What an amazing technology. But where does this ultimately start leaving us if we start relying on the computers to identify things for us? I think we all understand the type of world that's being created here. Well, again, there isn't enough time in the day to go through all the stories I even had lined up for all of this. We're going to switch over to James Evan Pilato in the Food World Order after this. But once again, the future is now, and the future is what we make it. So we have to be aware of the agendas that these various companies have. We have to be actively fighting back and trying to reclaim our humanity. ...to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Well, it's Thursday night, so as you know by now, 
Thursday night on the broadcast here in the last half. We talked to James M. Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com, and it's always something of a hard right turn when we uh, when we go into Food World Order after some of the stories that we cover in the first half of the broadcast. But from uh, from computers searching for cats and uh, and the coming transhumanist agenda, we switch over to FoodWorldOrder.com, talking about food, health, and the environment. So. Again, there's some positive stories here and some stories that we need to be concerned about. So let's take the good with the bad and let's put them both on the plate and consume them. And let's go for it, James. All right, man. Thanks for having me. And, and by my count, this is our this is our 25th segment of Food World Order. Happy 25th. So you were taking us into the future. So I, I tried to look and see if there were any sort of futuristic food updates I could start us out with. I couldn't find exactly that, so I'll, I'll flip to the complete opposite from the BBC. Pottery invented in China to cook food and brew alcohol. The oldest known samples of pottery have been unearthed in southern China, believed to be 20,000 years old. It is thought that the bowl was a cauldron to cook food or possibly to brew alcohol. So we can see that, of course, some things never change. 20,000 years ago. You still need some food, and you still need some spirits. James, I think we'd also be remiss if we, in the world of food, health, and the environment, didn't at least make some reference to Obamacare, which is the number one massive, all-the-time, top news story of the day here. Any thoughts? Oh, oh, that was an invitation. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts, and in fact, I was just on another program talking about that, and in fact, I'm going to be writing about it extensively in my newsletter this weekend, so I decided not to cover it on the broadcast. But yes, I think it's uh, actually surprising. I have become used to expecting tyranny at every level of the three branches of government, but for some reason, this one still took me a little bit by surprise. I honestly didn't think they would uphold the individual mandate, but it just goes to show, though, be able to ram anything they want down people's throats. And uh, that includes paying up to the private insurance companies. So win-win if you're invested in private insurance, health insurance, I guess. Isn't that, yeah, isn't it funny how that always ends up ends up working? You know, and I, I'm surprised as well. Uh, when I looked back into the Media Monarchy archives, I saw that the article posted back in, in March said, you know, Obamacare reaches Supreme Court, appears doomed. It's like, oh, well, I... I guess not. James, let's... No, but it also, just interestingly, isn't it interesting how the Holder uh, thing uh, passed today as well, under the cover of Obamacare? They held him in contempt. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actually, I mean, that is that is generating some headlines, but that, of course, isn't what, you know, everybody's tweeting about and Facebook statusing about and, and rabble rabble about. That, one, that one's definitely flying under the radar. Do you want to look Agreed. at the beat map? Let's do it. <laughs> if asked that question, most people would say, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> not me. <laughs> Taking it from foodsafetynews.com, antibiotic-free meat map launched for consumers. Coinciding with the new Meat Without Drugs campaign announced this week, tech startup Real-Time Farms launched a crowdsourced map to help consumers locate meat from animals raised without antibiotics. The Fix Antibiotics Food Finder that's on realtimefarms.com slash fixantibiotics allows shoppers to look up retail locations, farmers markets, farms and restaurants, sourcing antibiotic-free meat using their zip code or by zooming in on a geographic area. 
This campaign, as with so many things, comes down to people voting with their wallets because government is seen as moving too slowly, said Real Time Farms in a blog post today, June 28th. In April, or rather last week, I apologize, the FDA finalized a guidance on the judicious use of antibiotics in food and released a new plan to help curb the drugs used for growth promotion. The agency is asking veterinary drug companies to volunteer voluntarily change their drug labels on medically important antibiotics so that farmers will only be allowed to use the drugs to prevent, control, or treat diseases under the supervision of a veterinarian and to boost growth or improve feed efficiency. So I, I would say, aside from all the bizarre guidelines and supervision there at the bottom, and there's more sources from the New York Times and the FDA themselves, I, I would say, in a way, this goes along with the, the, the future headlines, James. That, that Again, we're able to sort of crowdsource this information, get together with people, and make these kind of bigger decisions that we would have never been able to collect the information about before. Absolutely right. That's a good point. I mean, I, I don't want to, again, just be knee-jerk negative with, with this, this type of technology. It does enable us, if we have our heads screwed on straight and have our priorities straight to accomplish things we never would have been able to accomplish in terms of fighting back against the corporate enslavement. So absolutely, it's a positive thing. And, uh, and I had seen the video of this campaign um, that, that's talking about signing some sort of petition um, about trying to get antibiotics out of out of meats, and I could only roll my eyes at that because I, I mean I've seen thousands and thousands of petitions come and go, and all that seems to me is just begging the master to allow you to do this or that. When absolutely it should be more focused on this aspect of finding out what companies or what corporations are using this and avoiding their products. That's the type of decision that we can make on an individual level. And it's good that it's becoming a movement, but even if it isn't, who cares what your neighbor is doing as long as you know what's, what your priorities are and you can make that decision for yourself, you make that decision. And by making that decision and, and letting others know about it, you will influence those around you. So I think that's where the real power lies. And you're right, it's an excellent idea of using crowdsourcing to, uh, to really understand the world that we're in so we can make better informed choices. James, I, I was actually just, I, it just kind of dawned on me because I, I, I don't have anything posted yet on Food World Order about it, but I want to make a, a brief mention and a, and a follow-up to something I did while I was covering for you while you were away, and that was the Oregon Water Watch situation. Nestle trying to bottle water here in Oregon. There was a big rally this past Tuesday, June 26th, in Portland, so I have some links and I have some articles and I also have a bunch of exclusive audio that I'm going to play live on the show tomorrow. Huge thanks to my awesome girlfriend who went there to the rally and, and recorded a lot of the speeches and sounds and songs and, and all of those things. And that, so I just want to make a reference to that, that that will be going up as again, another kind of good news and you can vote with your dollar and not buy Nestle products. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. But uh, I think it's time to get into your favorite subject, cereal. <laughs> it is. It's cereal time. And uh, I would tell folks the photo I have posted along with this is you know, I look at it and it could be something I could take myself while I was at work. I kind of see that that look on the kid's face when they go for the, the bad cereal. Now, in, in the defense, 99% of the parents, when I hear the kid go, hey, can we get Fruit Loops? The parents are always like, no. What makes you <laughs> 
I've never gotten it for you before, but don't give up trying that easily. From Reuters, study says kids' cereals actually are healthier, but the ads are not. While U.S. food companies are making healthier breakfast cereals for children, they're also aiming more ads for their unhealthiest products at kids, according to a report issued last Friday. The Cereal Facts study from Yale University's Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity offers an outside assessment of the industry's actions and comes amid rising alarm over diet-related health costs in the United States, where nearly a third of children are overweight or obese. Kelly Brownell, director of the Rudd Center, lauded cereal makers for changing their recipes to boost fiber and whole grain content while reducing sugar and sodium, but said there was ample room for further improvement. It's not enough, and the companies are still using all their marketing muscle to, per- to push their worst cereals on children, Brownell said. Spending to promote child-targeted cereals was $264 million in 2011, an increase of more than 30% from 2008, again, according to this Yale study, which follows a similar report three years ago. The study, and, and again, I provide the links to the press release from the from the Yale Rudd Center about this study, as well as the actual PDF of the study. You can get the full summary or the, or the full actual report. The study highlighted aggressive marketing of cereals like General Mills Incorporated's Reese's Puffs, Kellogg's Fruit Loops, which you should always remember is spelled F-R-O-O-T, and Post Holdings Incorporated's Pebbles to Children, brands which rank among the lowest for nutrition and the highest for added sugar. And I know even the mention of just the fruity pebbles, it does kind of take me back. I, I can kind of remember that smell and taste. I haven't had it in I couldn't tell you how long, and, and it's usually best to kind of keep those keep those memories in the past, James. Uh, as much as we possibly can. Well, it is interesting to see the, uh, the cereal manufacturers cleaning up their act in a certain sense, although, of course, continuing to market the junk to children. But it, it makes me wonder about the, uh, the, the where this type of food health and food safety is going, because I think there will be more of an emphasis on on foods that are uh, nominally healthier in terms of the, the caloric uh, content and the, the f- fats and uh, all of that. Uh, you know, in, in terms of reading the label, I think they'll look healthier, but... It, it, what about the fundamental base of the food supply becoming more and more genetically modified? And uh, and that's the type of the thing that will never appear on the label because, of course, uh, they're not going to label GMO foods. So uh, so that's the, the kind of hidden health issue that I think uh, in, in every generation there's a hidden health issue that, that goes under the radar. So back in the 1940s, they quietly slipped fluoride into the water, and now they're kind of admitting, oh, yeah, that was a mistake, and they're starting to lower the limits and things like that. But... Uh, again, moving from one agenda into another, and uh, I think ultimately this this might not be the the end all and be all of health and food safety is is not necessarily what you find on the label. Uh huh. You're you know you're absolutely right, and and I I find important right in there is the you know rising alarm over diet related health costs, and you know that that's going to tie in to the to the overarching you know health industrial complex, which is now going to kick into high gear, where if they say oh. Oh, you know, your, your carbon credits and, you know, the, your refrigerator tells us that, you know, you're, you're eating badly and all now you're classified. And I'm paying for your, I'm subsidizing your healthcare. So now I have a say in what you do in your life. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
So, James, continuing on foodworldorder.com, and again, I always throw out one, you know, all the things said here are, are said by James of media monarchy and, and represent no one else. The other is the huge thanks to my man Adam in Nova Scotia for helping post and write stories on foodworldorder.com from the Atlantic. What killed us then and now? A pretty disturbing chart from the New England Journal of Medicine comparing the reasons we die now to the way Americans went to their graves a century ago, charting the top ten causes of death for each year. In addition to the remarkable decline in mortality overall, it's noticeable how heart disease and cancer have surged to become two of America's top killers. And I think you could basically go into this and say that most of the things that kill us are completely avoidable, James. Yeah, completely avoidable. Well, that's that's the point, isn't it? Because, again, so much of this comes down to um, to personal choices in various ways. But, again, that doesn't mean that I think that anyone else should have a say in your personal choices. Mm-hmm. But uh, an interesting little infographic here. I think our, our next story kind of is maybe a follow-up or, or the contrast to one that we hit last week about the Oklahoma farm being being ripped up and destroyed because it's illegal. From naturalnews.com, small West Yorkshire town aims to be first town with food self-sufficiency by growing all of its own vegetables. Different local authorities throughout the USA have been harassing homeowners for growing veggies or herbs in their front lawn. But in the small town of Todmorden, England, a grassroots food movement has been started by one woman who grew veggies in her front yard and let neighbors pick them for free. It took six months before neighbors and passersby got the notion that Mary Clear's lowered fence and signs encouraging people to pick veggies from her lawn was for real. Mary, a 56-year-old grandmother, kicked off a scheme thought up with local Bear Cafe owner Pam Warhurst and others to engage in local guerrilla agriculture. Soon others joined in and they called their movement Incredible Edible. Now this small community has 70 large raised beds flourishing with fruits and vegetables, all of which are there for others to take from without paying. Wow. Wow. Let's all take a moment to tip our cap to Todd Morton, England, and to uh, to appreciate what they're doing there, because that's that, that to me is a revolution. Um, picking up uh, guns and going and storming the White House or whatever is not a revolution to me. This is a revolution because it actually affects things. And it's funny to even kind of, you can see how it probably took a while because what, you know, our, our nature now is you would walk by that and go, oh, I'm not going to do that. She's, she's probably crazy. Oh, they're probably poisoned or you wouldn't trust it. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, that is, that is part of it. But, uh, and there is always that, there, there is always that side to things. So for example, I mean, when we come together as a community and we do things like this, there is the possibility that there will be some crazy person who, who does something bad with that but that that is what price freedom well the price is that there are risks involved with things like this and we have to make our own personal choices and live with the consequences but personally i'd rather do that than uh, than be subject to some corporate system that's supposedly governed by some governmental agency that's going to maintain food safety and what have you i think that's uh again I, anyone who listens to this broadcast knows that that's a pipe dream James, I, I, you and I were talking uh, a few days ago, I think, and maybe it was even off mic, about how sometimes stories in the alternative media will will make a return, and you'll drill down to the original story, and you'll go, hey, that story's a year old. Why is that coming back around? So 
that I think would give us another opportunity, as we always say. You know, don't take it just because the mainstream media may be lying or lying by omission doesn't mean the alternative media is 100 percent. So, uh, you know, exactly. always, even when it's not uh, intentional, it can still be inaccurate. So it's best for people to do that. And on that note, perhaps I should uh, do a mea culpa. Uh, last week on the broadcast, I was talking about more Icelandic bankers arrested because it was coming across the alternative media news wires as a new story. But as one attentive listener pointed out, that was, in fact, a story from January 2011 and uh, had somehow been reposted and as if it was a new story. So I myself have to admit that I didn't take a close enough look at the dateline on that one. But uh, but absolutely, I think we should all be wary and cautious and and verify all the information we get from whatever source. I, th- I yeah, always always kind of drill down, always click through to get back to that original source. So I in on that note, genetically modified cows churn out human breast milk. We have this story on foodworldorder.com, and and I looked, and it was cryptagon.com. They they reposted it. So I suppose if it's good enough for Cryptagon.com, it's good enough for food. <laughs> I had originally posted this story back on April 3rd, 2011. Genetically modified cows produce human milk. Yeah, I remember this story the first time around, and uh, I think it's it's not a bad thing that it's getting attention again because it it's is true. the type of thing that we have to think about again as we're moving into that sci-fi reality. That's true. And on that note... I hear the dulcet tones of, uh, of Jimmy Chamberlain Complex. So that's uh, going to play us out into the break. Again, we're talking to James Envelato of FoodWorldOrder.com, so I hope you will go to FoodWorldOrder to check out these stories, as always, where you can check them out in their entirety and follow the links to, uh, to check it out for yourself. On that note, we'll take a short break, and we'll finish up with the Food World Order update right after these messages. program friends welcome back to corporate report radio tonight here on the latter half of the broadcast we're talking to james evan Pilato of foodworldorder.com about food health and the environment we've almost gotten through the updates for this week just a couple more stories to hit up so let's do it let's clean off the plate james what have we got up next well i think we we flip back where we started and get back to the future scientists harness human power for electricity this from scientificamerican.com getting into all of the ways that using and pulling this kind of kinetic energy from, you know, tapping and moving and and all of those things. The fascinating related story to this from treehugger.com, the power of sitting, unplugged desk harvests your energy for electricity, and meanwhile, a human-powered helicopter makes record flight. So, James, again, I think, I would, yeah, you're absolutely right. We we are living in the future. We are, and uh, I certainly hope people will click through to that human-powered helicopter contraption. It's quite a bizarre little video to watch. And, uh, again, uh, you know, the, the potential good is great. The potential, well, but why do I, why does my mind get caught up in uh, soiling green as people? I mean, I, I just see... <laughs> I just see the dystopian uh, ways that this can play out uh, when people literally can be used as a power source. I mean, it's it's the literal matrix. So there's there's where my mind goes. But but certainly there are absolutely amazing technologies that can be made from this. 
Well, and I think I, you know, the key is if it's an open source kind of technology that you could do it yourself, just as you could, you know, attach solar panels and, and any of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, that is a good point because again, I think it's who's, uh, who's funding the agenda, who's implementing it. And if we're doing it on a distributed level, then it's for the good. That's, I, I know what I was going to say to you earlier. You maybe, you were, you were searching for the Ani DeFranco quote you, you didn't know. Every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. So with that, James, let's hop to our binge and purge. That's the list of headlines on foodworldorder.com. Immunity, obesity, a company, and more. And there is so very much to get into. As as usual, James, I just kind of pull a few of the most noteworthy ones. The, The top of the list, scientists create bird flu that's easily spread among mammals, I think would follow up our recent discussions about the labs. But another follow up. U.S. judge rules U.S. immune from paying for infecting Guatemalans with syphilis. A federal judge has invalidated a lawsuit by victims of U.S. experiments involving venereal disease in Guatemala during the 40s and 50s. James, I'm not entirely sure how far this story goes back when we we first reported on it, but here's the, the gruesome update. Yeah, I think a couple of years now, but but absolutely, and... Uh... Again, what's uh, what's surprising about that? Um, and and <laughs> there's a lot of rulings coming out in the past week that, that are interesting. Yeah, really, I mean, in a way, I think a lot of it is that they're busting out a lot of these rulings before they all scatter for the summer of God knows what. A couple of the other notes to note on the binge and purge, James. A positive drug story. Chicago City Council passes pot possession ticket ordinance basically saying... We don't have the time and money to process this stuff. As long as you're not acting in complete disregard for people, drinks be fine. Interesting too that that's taking place in uh, a traditionally gangster-centric community. Exactly. We might say so. Interesting. They're uh, they're kind of letting that go, but yeah, lots of stuff. But uh, but I hear the music coming in, so I don't think we have time to go through the rest. There's just mutated pests and and so much more, James. It's it's all on foodworldorder.com. It always is, so I hope people are checking it out on a daily basis. James, Evan Pilato, once again, thank you for your time, your insights, your research, and your dedication. Thank you. All right. On that note, we will let James go, and uh, thank you all for listening in for tonight's uh, broadcast. Once again, the radio show is, of course, uh, in the archives at RBN, and the video will be up on CorbettReport.com, hopefully in the next few hours, uh, all, if all goes according to plan. So... Once again, thank you for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to doing it again tomorrow night. Talk to you later.